Probably most of you have uh, seen the calendar verse for this month and have read that uh, it's the theme of equanimity or upeka. And in considering this particular theme, I would uh, like to start with looking at the very word itself, the way we translate upeka into English, this word equanimity, because if we don't know what we're considering, we can get off onto the wrong track. We can have all sorts of prejudices, biases, assumptions that don't really apply. So, obviously, the first thing to start with is that this quality, Upeka, is a, is a very wholesome quality, something the Buddha praised most highly. And as mentioned in many of the lists that, that, that come uh, through the teachings, equanimity or upekar is mentioned as uh, one of the highest virtues and and yet uh, the word equanimity in English I'm not sure what that sounds like to you I, 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 I suspect for a lot of people equanimity is a kind of has a kind of a bland word it doesn't have a lot of vitality or, or it's not exactly very uh, appealing and yet this quality is uh, is certainly something that that we're encouraged to get very interested in. <clears throat> and so finding our own word for it, uh, you might find your own word this evening or you might go on later on to consider it and think about it and find your own word. But my own word for it, when I think about upeka, um, it's not a very elegant word, but uh, it, it, it captures what I, I feel is the essence of this quality, this virtue, and that is unflappability. Now, I told you it wasn't a very elegant word, um, unflappability, but, but can you think what it would be like to become unflappable? Yeah. When I lived with my first teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Tate, he was totally unflappable. It's not that he wasn't tempted. I mean, I've told you before how we lived right on the bank of the Mekong River, and it was one of the narrowest parts of the Mekong River, and one night there was you know, somebody trying to um, ship their tractor across from Laos into Thailand because uh, before the revolution in Laos, <coughs> people often had land on both sides of the river and they didn't even really recognize the boundary very much. There'd be a lot of toing and froing. The language was the same on both sides of the river and people had relatives on both sides of the river and they sometimes had farming land on both sides of the river. And, and one night the... Uh, the farmer was trying to bring his tractor across and they, they, they just shot him up and uh, right there in front of the monastery. And you could see traces at night and the, the Russian speedboats going up and down the river and, and that was not exactly um, a pleasant scene to be dealing with. But Ajahn Tate was completely unflappable. Not to mention the fact that he had advanced leukemia as well and a large monastery and a lot of disciples to look after. Or Ajahn Chah, likewise, living with Ajahn Chah. There's this uh, 
there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and vitality and energy about the man, but he was also completely unflappable. It was like you could never catch him off guard. And I don't mean the guard of a control freak. I mean, there was just, there was a quality of, there was encoded, or if you like, as one aspect of his presence was this unflappability. Or imperturbability, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a more elegant word, imperturbability, to be imperturbable. We know what it's like to be perturbed or to get into a flap. It's very easy to get into a flap over things or to be perturbed. But what the Buddha is holding up is, is a quality of consciousness which can be characterized as imperturbable unshakable and uh, so this word is equanimity there was a, an example when Lajan Shah was visiting this country and uh, quite fitting for this evening as all the Guy Fawkes uh, explosions going off around us during our meditation there was an example one evening when the monks and were sitting with Lajan Shah in meditation and in the uh, place that they had then which was uh, on uh, Haverstock Hill in Hampstead in London, and a little a townhouse there that the monks and Ajahn Chah and, and visitors were all cramped up in, and they would do their evening puja in the living room, and and that was interesting because it was just across the road from a local pub, and these uh, forest monks were not used to living um, a chain, or is it two chains? I think it would, the road is a chain wide, is it? You know, 22 yards from a pub. They were used to living in forests, and um, so after the meditation, one of the uh, one of the meditators there, one of the monks, asked Ajahn Chah. He said, "How do you deal with distractions? All this noise coming in and and irritating us during the meditation." And Ajahn Chah just cackled. He says, "What do you mean the noise is irritating you? You are irritating the noise." The noise is just so. From his perspective, from his perspective of being awareness, from his perspective of being awareness, the content of awareness is just so. The sound is just the sound. The seeing is just the seeing. The taste is just the taste. The thoughts are just the thoughts, for that matter, as well. And so... This is also, I think, in uh, beginning our contemplation on equanimity, a very important principle to, to, to uh, consider, to take on, that, that equanimity or upekara is not something that we, we achieve necessarily. It's true, we can imitate it, we can cultivate it, but the equanimity that we're aiming for, the upekara that we're aiming for, is the characteristic of a truly peaceful heart and mind. That if we know the state of being awareness, if we know the state of awareness that has let go, if we know the state of awareness that has let go of conditions, then one aspect, one expression of that is unflappability, imperturbability. So we don't want to approach this to think we've got to, here's something else we've got to become. We've got to become imperturbable now. You know, we had to become mindful and we had to become kind and then we had to become good and for goodness.
goodness sake, all of that other stuff, all that religious stuff that we had to become. Well, don't believe it. You know, you know, Buddhism 101, becoming is suffering. And that's not, you know, that's not something that somebody made up. That's what the Buddha said. One of the most basic, becoming is suffering. <clears throat> that lovely quote again from Ajahn Chah where somebody asked him about becoming Arahant, becoming Bodhisattvas. He says, don't become anything. You know, if you become an Arahant, you'll suffer. If you become Bodhisattva, you'll suffer. Don't become anything. So let's not hold up equanimity as something else we have to become. But let's consider it as a quality that's inherent in awareness itself, in freed consciousness itself. So uh, given that it is a quality that uh, uh, is is, uh, truly supportive of all the other aspects of practice, the wisdom and compassion that we're looking for is supported by equanimity, by upekā, then what is it we can do about it? Well, the most direct thing is to do whatever's needed, whatever it takes. And of course, everybody's got a different route. But what does it take? What does it take for us to experience that falling into awareness? And, and this question, each of us has to ask ourselves and find out for ourselves. What does it take? so that we find we can fall into this awareness where there is equanimity, where there is the clear seeing that all the contents of awareness are just so. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions, all of it are just so. Even the thought that it's just so is just so. Even the thought about awareness is just so. If we can imagine for the sake of contemplation, that awareness is like space. If we can talk about awareness as space, then anything and everything that passes through that space is just so, like the space of this room. If we can use this as a metaphor, the space of this room, say this is awareness, then the colours, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the sensations, the touch, the ideas that we all might be having in this room, all of this is the stuff, the activity that's taking place. In what? All this activity, all this content is taking place in, what is it known by? It's known by awareness. Now, what does it take for us to fall into finding ourselves as that awareness? Now, for some people, well, for probably for most people, it takes initially some degree of willingness to steady attention. You know, our attention, the, the knowingness, the, the watchfulness can be all over the place. And looking at this, smelling this, tasting that, touching this, thinking this, worrying with this, uh, hoping for that, regretting this. And the busyness, the activity of the mind... It dilutes the intensity of attention. And so if we want to really find out about something, what is it we say? We say you've got to pay attention. Well, if you don't have much attention, you've got, you, know, you can't pay for very much. So what do we do? We gather all our attention. We gather attention until attention becomes one-pointed. But again, remember, this is not an exercise in becoming one-pointed. But because we're interested in discovering and investigating, 
reality. We want to see beyond the way things appear to be. The way things appear to be is just a mess. Just chaos. That's the way it appears to be. And yet there have been people, and there are people, presumably, who live in the midst of all this apparent chaos, but they're totally unflappable, totally imperturbable. Why? Well, because they can see beyond the apparent chaos. So we get interested in that and say, wow, that's, that, I find that incredibly, in fact, I find that the most interesting things, going and watching sky rockets, well, and that's kind of interesting, but you know, quite frankly, much more interesting is the ability to see beyond the way things appear to be, to see beyond the chaos of life, and to realize the inherent imperturbability of that seeing, that insight. So if we hear this presented, then we, we are inclined towards the effort that brings attention together. So attention becomes one point. And then if you experience one-pointedness, you experience the powerfulness of that. And it's just the same as you concentrate light with a magnifying glass. You can do all sort of things with light that you couldn't do when it was dispersed. Get a magnifying glass, and I remember as a child, probably all of us have had that experience. You know, you get this magnifying glass, you hold it, and you focus it right, and pulls the paper starts burning. And then you go to your mate and you put it on your mate's leg, and <laughs> well, you know, only do that once. But yeah, really, where did, what are you dealing with? It's the same energy, it's light. But what have you done? All you've done, the only thing you've done is focused it. And so we become interested in focusing attention and if we get a feeling for focused attention, it's a very good feeling. It's a feeling that is, you just know in your guts this is appropriate to be able to do this. To the dissipated attention, well, you know, there's certain things we can do with dissipated attention, you know, casual concerns of life. But really profoundly important concerns of life, like how to see beyond the chaos to the inherent order, which in Buddhism is called Dhamma, how to see in that way we need to focus attention. So that's pretty much true for probably most people that we need to get interested in that exercise and, and find a way, not of willfully becoming something, but of collecting attention. So we've got our attention, so we can pay attention to that which is really worthy of attention, which is the experience of this moment. And so... If we have gathered attention, in whatever way we do that, we find we can gather it, then we're in a position where we can really shine the light of focused attention on reality, on this moment, on this experience. You know, like, for instance, a noise that comes. We're sitting there peacefully, well, reasonably peacefully, quiet and calm, and then there's some irritating noise comes along, some unpleasant noise comes along. Some unwelcome noise comes along. And then what happens? If we've got focused attention at that moment, if we're really still, not just, not just numbed out, because this is one of the dangers of focused attention, and also one of the misunderstandings of equanimity, you can fall into a state of numbness, you can tranquilize yourself. No, not that, but a state of alive focused attention, and here's this irritating noise comes along, this unpleasant noise comes along, but there's a stillness there, and if you're ready enough, prepared enough, and interested enough, you can see in that moment that you've got a choice. You can stay as that still awareness, which recognizes the sound, recognizes the 
unpleasantness of it, but doesn't move. You recognise you've got that power. That's what awareness can know. Awareness can know that there's a choice. The other option is you can go out and you can say, it shouldn't be this way. What are the, 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 what are the farmer driving by with his tractor in the middle of my meditation place his, his radio one out there while we're trying to meditate. And, and what have we done there? Well, we just created samsara. We just, we just contributed to the mess of life. But if we can see that, if we have the collected attention, uh, the focus and the mindfulness and the watchfulness and the interest all together there in that moment, then there's a n- new understanding arises, a new way of seeing arises that we've got a choice. Like letting go is possible. And what do you let go into? You let go of the object, but you let go into being awareness. And, and depending on how deeply and how fully we fall into awareness, well then... Also, we get an intuition, a feeling for the inherent quality of imperturbability that comes with that. Not because you're trying to not react, but just, well, that's the way it is. There's a context to all this content. There's a context. There's an awareness of all of this. So we don't have to become the stuff. There's a capacity for knowing this is how it is. And that knowing is not cold, not numb, not dead, but is alive and vibrant. So if you have the experience of of meeting beings who have such an ability to fall into awareness, to abide as awareness, like Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Chah, such characters, uh, you can sense the the powerfulness, the beauty uh, and the relevance of that way of being. So that does contrast, and it is worth bringing it into our, our contemplation, the, the uh, false equanimity, which, as I mentioned a minute ago, we need to be careful about. A penny uh, recently showed me an essay that was written by Ajahn Tanisaro. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Ajahn Tanisaro's teachings, and this essay... I. I found it's available on the internet, and it's called um, "Jhana Not by Numbers." And in this essay, he talks about uh, the state of absorption, or one-pointedness, or collectedness, focused attention that is so one-pointed and, and so deep and so subtle that very few people come across it. But if you get interested in developing the jhanas or developing one-pointedness of mind, from his perspective, it, it is quite possible to drop into this state. And, um, and so when he was experiencing this particular, there are many variations on these states of one-pointedness, but this particular version of it, he dropped into it and said he could stay there for just ages and ages and ages. You know, just effortless, just to stay in this state. And you could program yourself before you go into it and you could come out of it exactly when you programmed yourself to come out of it. A very powerful state. But uh, when he reported it to his teacher, Ajahn Fuang, Ajahn Fuang said, well, you know, how was it? You know, how did you feel about it? And Ajahn Tanisha says, I didn't like it. He said, there's something missing, there's something off there. And, uh, and it's a state of samadhi, a state of concentration, where there wasn't sufficient mindfulness. There wasn't the presence. There wasn't the quality of attention, which means you can learn from that state. 
And so Ajahn Fung said, well, he said, I'm really pleased you didn't like it because actually it's very dangerous uh, getting into that sort of samadhi. As attractive as it can be at one level, you know, if you've had a tough life and you suffered enough, well, then actually getting tranquilized is quite attractive. And uh, many people come to meditation having had a lot of pain in their life and then they realize that just by focusing your mind and concentrating that you can break through to another experience of consciousness which is such a relief the mind drops into the stillness and and uh, if you keep going ahead on that level then maybe you'll end up in one of these states that Ajahn Tanistra was talking about well I think it's fortunate that there are such words of caution around because that might feel like equanimity but it's not the equanimity the Buddha was talking about the equanimity or the upeka the imperturbability and the unflappability that Ajahn that, the, that uh, the Buddha was talking about is uh, concurs with uh, with insight, with understanding. It's a clear seeing. It's something that we can cultivate if we're careful. Now, uh, the kind of carefulness that's needed in in approaching this is not because we're we're uh, scared of dropping into into absorption, but it's just like when you're driving a car very fast, you're careful. You know I mean, if you're driving along the motorway, and especially if it's foggy, you know, even if you're not going very fast at all, you should be careful. Well, so it is for a lot of us. You know, when we're practicing, it is kind of foggy a lot of the time. We don't know where we're going, and there's nothing wrong with that, unless we forget about it. Unless we pretend we know what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing, and that's a very that's a very helpful way of, of cultivating imperturbability, is to remember that we don't know. To, um, you know, I recommend people have it as a screensaver on their computer. I don't know what I'm doing. Of course we don't know what we're doing, but we get around as if we do. Or have it as a fridge magnet or something. You know, right? Because, you know, we do, we seriously, we do need to, we do need to feed this in uh, a good friend of mine uh, recently uh, nursed his partner of 23 years uh, through his demise and and, um, and a very sad and painful death uh, six months from just normal healthy life to to dying and uh, and of course uh, he was very committed to being with his partner and and yet how do you do that when you've been together for 23 years or 24 years, how do you do that? And uh, he doesn't live locally, so I wasn't able to go and, and visit him. And but we spoke on the phone, and and he was he was he was sharing the, the struggle, and um, I, I was happy that he, he wanted to, and uh, but then asking for for guidance and help, you know, what came to my mind immediately is what I find when I'm with people who are dying is. You know, I just have to remind myself I don't know what to do here. Because I don't remember dying. I don't know what it's like for them. And uh, I, you know, I haven't been around enough people to have unfortunately developed some sort of strategy to deal with it. Yeah. I say unfortunately because that is quite possible. You can say, well, I know what to do here. How can you know? How can you know how to be with somebody when they're dying? The best way to be with somebody when they're dying is to be with this, which is I really don't know what to do right now. Mm -hmm. 
And once we admit that, once we admit that we know we don't know, we've got our feet on the ground again and there's some stability, some hint at least of imperturbability, of equanimity. The opposite of equanimity or being perturbed or being flappable or being in a flap over things is often the result of thinking that we do know or pretending we do know or thinking we should know. Uh, well, I know that for myself. I'm faced with difficult situations. Uh, people are projecting onto me that, you know, well, you should know what to do, you know. And often I don't know what to do. And so I've got to really remind myself, oh, I don't know what to do here. Oh, thank goodness. And so some equanimity comes into it again, some clarity, some settling. So that helps. But also, um, I was saying about taking care, being careful as we, as we, uh, we get interested in cultivating equanimity, not to, not to pretend that, not to pretend that we're equanimous when we're not. But on the other hand, we don't have to wait until we've got organic, authentic, full-blown equanimity before we at least try to emulate it a little bit. So, so there is a place for imitating equanimity, so long as we know we're doing it. So we're not lying to ourselves about it, but we can emulate it. You know, if you know, met somebody who's equanimous, not numbed out, not dead, not depressed, but somebody who's got passionate equanimity... If you've met somebody like that, you say, well, we could emulate that. That helps. Yeah, that helps just to have that image of somebody like that, to bring that image of that person to mind. Yeah, that helps. And another thing that helps is, um, this is a classic contemplation, which we do here in the monastery. We contemplate the four divine abidings. Uh, kindness, compassion, empathy, and equanimity. May I abide in well-being. May all beings abide in well-being. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings not be parted from their good fortune. And then the fourth one, which is all beings are the owners of their karma, heir to their karma, born of their karma, related to their karma, abide supported by their karma. Whatever karma they shall do, for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs. And the, the message behind that contemplation is equanimity that in the situations we find ourselves in life, that uh, if we're not careful, we lose the boundary. We take on, we take responsibility for something that's not really ours. We take on somebody else's suffering when in fact, in fact, in reality, in truth, we can't take their suffering away from them. Even the Buddha couldn't take their suffering away from others. What we can do is be with somebody in their suffering. That's compassion. You know, calm with, passion, feeling. Feeling with somebody in the context of pain. So that's, that's valid. But if we don't have equanimity, then we, we run the risk of uh, compassion fatigue. Basically, we can burn out. We can feel too much. We can get too involved. We can take on too much. And, um, you know, from the perspective of, uh, of uh, ego obsession or self-obsession, that can even feel virtuous. And if we don't have a perspective of being awareness, if we don't have that sense of how to abide as awareness, then we can fall into the trap of thinking, of believing that being compassionate 
is virtuous you know, from the perspective of being attached to getting the result we're looking for. There's wise compassion and there's ignorant compassion. Wise compassion is compassion that's also got equanimity. We can feel with those who are suffering, share the pain, shed the tears, but there's a point, there's an edge, there's a recognition that ultimately they have to let go of their causes for suffering. So if we don't have the recognition of that edge, of that boundary, if we don't know where that is and we cross it, well then we take on more and we in fact increase the suffering for ourselves and we cease to be helpful to them. An indifferent, cold, unfeeling relationship with somebody who's suffering is certainly not what's recommended. Ignorant compassion, ignorant equanimity is not what's advised, but compassionate equanimity is. So, so not just those two, but all four. And you'll read in Ajahn Sumato's comment on the calendar verse for this month of November where he talks about uh, this quality of a mindfulness or quality of, of awareness, true awareness, has as its most perfect expression kindness, compassion, empathy, and equanimity. So for this evening and uh, considering how to bring into being this virtue, this quality that the Buddha held up in so many ways on so many occasions. I would recommend that, that uh, first we, we do um, make a project of trying to find our own word for it. You don't settle for this word equanimity if you don't like it. I don't like it. You don't have to like the word equanimity. It, it, it doesn't have enough warmth or feeling to it. and It's not broad enough. So, so find your own word. And then really take on board, consider the, the principle that this quality that we're looking for is inherent in awareness itself. We don't have to become anything. We don't have to become equanimous. The effort that we're encouraged to make is towards whatever, whatever it takes to fall into being aware so that equanimity is a natural expression of consciousness. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.